Noon, Monday, May 6th, 2013, Ottawa, Kansas. None of his family or friends talk with Andrew Stout, age 30, for several days. Three of his friends decide to stop by his rural Kansas home to check on him. One of them peers into the detached garage near the house, recoils, and says, Is that teeth? They have discovered a human body, partly covered with a tarp. The smell of death hangs heavy over the property. Just after noon that day, they call 911. Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Before I get too far in, the episode this week is especially horrifying. There are four murders, decomposing bodies, and one victim is a very small girl. I will be sensitive about this, but the case is truly disturbing. I certainly understand if you'd rather skip this episode. Okay, Andrew Stout is 30 years old and lives at 3197 Georgia Road on a very small rural property about eight miles east of Ottawa, Kansas. Ottawa is a pretty little town of 12,000 people, about an hour's drive south of Kansas City. It's located in sparsely populated Franklin County, Kansas, where Ottawa is the county seat. Also located there are Ottawa University, a small liberal arts school, and two major national distribution centers for Walmart and American Eagle Outfitters. The property Andrew lives on is owned by his mother, Karen Anderson, 
who's in Texas. There's a modular home and a detached garage. It's a modest property, five acres. Modular homes are also called prefabricated or manufactured. Kind of a step up from a trailer house. From the pictures of the crime scene, it looks like a decent-sized modular house. It burned down a few years ago, so I'm guessing. But it looks like a living room, kitchen, two, maybe three bedrooms. Single guy Andrew Stout shares the place with a variety of people who stay there from time to time. Andrew comes from a large family, three brothers and three sisters. Andrew is laid back and sociable. He likes frisbee golf, paintball, Xbox, and Mario Brothers. He often hosts groups of friends at his place, and he doesn't mind having roommates. I picture the place on Georgia Road as kind of a local crash pad for people who need a place to stay. He has a couple of long-term sort of roommates who have lived there off and on for several years. One of them is Stephen White. He's 31, and looking at his prison record, he's been an in and out of prison his whole life. Arson, burglary, and drug offenses. Stephen is married to Randy White, and they have two children, three and six. But apparently, they don't live together much. It seems like when he isn't in prison, he mostly stays with Andrew. Andrew's other roommate is Kyle Flack, 27, a close friend of Andrew's. He is a trouble guy who survived a chaotic and abusive childhood. Kyle and his older brother Brad and Andrew have been close for many years, and Kyle is fiercely loyal to Andrew. In the spring of 2013, Andrew has a job at the American Eagle Distribution Center in Ottawa. He has a girlfriend, 21-year-old Kaylee Bailey, daughter of Jim and Lisa Smith. Jim lives in Ottawa, and Lisa lives up in Olathe, Kansas, a short drive north of Ottawa. While Kaylee still lives in Olathe, she spends a lot of time at Andrew's place. Kaylee is a single mother who works as a security guard at American Eagle, where Andrew works. Her ex-husband, Sean Bailey, is the kind of guy who can't stay off drugs and is in and out of jail all the time. In the spring of 2013, he is in jail over in Missouri. Andrew and Kaylee are getting pretty serious. Their parents have been introduced. There are plans for Kaylee and her 18-month-old daughter, Lana Lee, to move in with Andrew at his place sometime soon. Stephen White has already moved out, while Kyle Flack still has his room at Andrew's place. Andrew is scheduled to work a shift at American Eagle at 4.30 p.m. on Monday, April 29, 2013. He doesn't show up. On Wednesday, May 1st, 2013, Kaylee doesn't report for her security shift at 11 p.m. Unable to reach her, Kaylee's boss files a missing person report on Friday, May 3rd. Andrew's mother asks one of her daughters, Amberly, 
to check on him when she can't get in touch with Andrew. It's dark and rainy when Amberly gets out to the modular home. No one is home, and the windows have been left open. The house is very messy, but that's normal. The foul smell is not normal. Amberly closes the windows and tells her mother it smells like something died out there. The next day, Andrew's father files a missing person report with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. When deputies respond, they don't report anything suspicious at the house. Over the weekend, they visit the place several times, checking both the house and the outbuilding. Friends of Andrew's, who have been asked to feed the pets by the family, are troubled by what they find on Sunday, in particular the foul odor. When they point this out to deputies, they are assured that the whole place has been checked out. However, on Monday, three friends decide to look in the gar garage and the house themselves. One looks through the hole in a cinder block in the garage, recoils, and says, Is that teeth? When they go in the garage, it is clear that a human body is there, partly covered by a tarp. They retreat from the garage and call the sheriff's office again a little afternoon on Monday, May 6, 2013. When Andrew's friends make the emergency call that Monday, Franklin County, Kansas deputies respond quickly. They should. They are very familiar with the residents at 3197 Georgia Road, eight miles west of Ottawa, Kansas, because it's the fifth time they've been out there since Friday. They dismiss the foul odors, and even after going inside the house and the garage, the deputies didn't find anything suspicious. Honestly, listeners, I'm willing to slam the responders on this one. It's the Kansas countryside. People know the difference between the smell of garbage and the smell of dead bodies. The body in the garage should have been found the first time the police were called. Thank goodness for nosy friends. This time, the big guns get called in. The Johnson County, Kansas CSI unit and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Besides the body found in the garage, two more decomposing bodies are located in the southwest bedroom of the house. By Tuesday, the bodies are being professionally autopsied. The body in the garage is identified as Stephen White, the roommate who supposedly moved out a couple of weeks ago. Two more decomposing bodies are found in the master bedroom under huge piles of clothing. They will later be identified as Andrew Stout and Kaylee Bailey. 18-month-old Lana Lee Bailey is missing.
Law enforcement agencies from all over the area joined the investigation. On one of our cases, we talked about major case squads in Kansas called M-Squads. These are formed to put resources from different law enforcement jurisdictions together. The result is better investigations. Often small towns and rural areas don't have the resources or experience to handle complex murder investigations. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office is also reeling under a recent scandal which forced the resignations of the sheriff and his top deputy. From what I could find, the sheriff allegedly told a female Johnson County assistant district attorney with whom he was allegedly having an affair that a confidential informant told the FBI that she was involved in a drug case they were investigating, allegedly. She, for real, denies all of this, and I don't see anybody doing jail time. Ultimately, the sheriff just admits that mistakes were made, and he and a deputy resigned. The result, though, is that the whole department is under a cloud. The new people must work hard to restore the public's confidence, so they wisely call in help. The M-Squad consists of over 40 experienced, able investigators from all over the state. The Kansas City Morgue processes the bodies, calling in specialists to investigate cause and time of death. The authorities quickly get the word out to the media about the missing toddler. Her pictures are everywhere in the media. And listeners, they are so appealing. Tiny little Lana Lee Bailey is absolutely adorable. Huge blue eyes, sweet face. Everyone in Kansas and Missouri and Arkansas and Oklahoma is looking for her. The FBI is involved. But it's too late. She's been missing for days now, and tragically, she won't be found alive. Law enforcement puts together a timeline of events leading up to the murders after interviewing dozens of witnesses. This is essentially what the Ottawa Herald newspaper reports. On Thursday, April 18th, 2013, Randy White drives her husband, Stephen, around to pick up job applications. They buy the weekend edition of the Ottawa Herald newspaper so he can have the want ads. When detectives search the modular home at 3197 Georgia Road, they find a stack of newspapers in order by date with the latest paper on the top of the stack, the same weekend edition that Stephen bought. So it is assumed that Stephen made it home that night. The next night, Friday, April 19th, Andrew and a bunch of friends socialize and play Xbox at the house on Georgia Road until early Saturday morning. Some friends think Stephen was at the party. Others aren't sure. All agree that Kyle Flack was there all night. Tuesday, April 23rd is Stephen White's mother's birthday. 
She usually gets a phone call from her son that day, but she later testified that she didn't worry much about that. He had warned her that he was running out of minutes on his cell phone. It makes sense. He's an unemployed ex-con with an ex-wife and two kids. He's probably not supporting very well. Of course, he's having a tough time with his finances. This is reported to be a source of conflict at the Georgia Roadhouse because Stephen hasn't been paying any rent to Andrew like he was supposed to. It wouldn't be surprising if someone like that wore out his welcome sometimes and went off couch surfing. Doesn't sound like Stephen White is a terrible guy, but he's certainly not the most responsible, reliable guy either. I think if he went missing for a few days, people might wonder what he's up to, but they probably wouldn't be especially worried about him. On Friday, April 26th, Andrew and Kaylee take Lana to a barbecue at a friend's house in Gardner, Kansas, up by Olathe. Olathe and Gardner used to be little Kansas country towns, but the Kansas City metro area has grown so much down to the south that they're almost suburbs now. Gardner is the site of a major intermodal railroad facility for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, or the BNSF. The facility is really an interesting place, listeners, very busy, where trucks and trains exchange containers. Kyle Flack tags along to the barbecue with them. Andrew Helm and his wife Lori host the barbecue. Helm is friends with both Andrew Stout and Kyle. Lana plays happily with Helm's two boys while the adults chat and grill hamburgers. This is just a little over a week before the bodies are discovered. During the search for Lana, the most widely circulated photo of her is from that Friday barbecue. The next day, April 27th, Kaylee Bailey buys tickets for three adults to bowl at an Olathe bowling alley. Nobody else has ever said that they were with Kaylee and whoever that night, so the assumption is that the three adults were Andrew, Kaylee, and Kyle. On Sunday, April 28th, Andrew Stout and Kyle are caught on surveillance footage at a convenience store. Listeners, this is the last time Andrew is accounted for absolutely. The investigation will turn up cell phone records and banking transactions that appear to show he went to Emporia that night. However, it's possible that it wasn't Andrew who was using his phone and debit card. Andrew and Kyle have friends in Emporia, and Kyle's mother lives there. Emporia's another small city in Kansas off to the west of Ottawa, about an hour's drive maybe. It's larger than Ottawa and home to Emporia State University, which has about 6,000 students. It's also home 
to influential American newspaper editor William Allen White. He was the editor of the Emporia paper, which was an influential paper as far as middle America, back um, probably more like the 30s and 40s in that era. Listeners, there are a little discrepancies in the reporting on this. Um, in the Lawrence Journal World report of the prosecutor's presentation of the case, it says on April 28th, that's Sunday, Flack was seen with Stout on convenience store videos in Emporia, Ottawa, and Pomona. That evening, they went bowling. Uh, Pomona is a tiny little place just west of the Georgia Road property. Anyway, that sounds like Andrew and Kyle were definitely together all day on Sunday and maybe then went bowling some more. Maybe they like bowling a lot. Kyle doesn't have a car, so they would be in Andrew's car, a Chevy Caprice that he sometimes has to do a little work on. I can see, you know, either situation, um, you know, for some reason, Kyle's got the card and the phone and he's the one traveling around or, you know, they're both together most of the night before they get back home. Monday afternoon, the 29th, Dylan Phillips and his mother, Janie Slankard, stopped by the modular home at 3197 Georgia Road. Dylan had been staying at the place for a while and still had to pick up some of his stuff. Only Kyle Flack is at the house. He tells them that Andrew is running some errands before he has to go to work at American Eagle by 4 p.m. Janie notices that there are towels and sheets covering all the windows in the house and asks why. Kyle tells them that there was some trouble with drug associates of Stephen White's, so they were keeping the windows covered. Yes, listeners, this is an odd explanation. Janie thought so, too. Dylan and Janie also remember that Kyle mentions Andrew and Kaylee have plans for Wednesday night, and he will be babysitting Lana. Dylan offers to come over and hang out with Kyle and help with Lana. Then they get all Dylan's stuff and leave. Andrew does not show up for work that afternoon. Kaylee's movements on Friday, May 1st, 2013, determined by statements from her mother, Lisa Smith, and the investigation done by law enforcement. This information is from the prosecutor's motion to admit what Lisa says Kaylee told her that day. They have to do this motion because it could be argued that a mother saying what her daughter told her is actually hearsay evidence, which is only allowed under certain conditions www.legaldictionary.com has a nice, simple, legal explanation of hearsay. The term hearsay refers to an out-of-court statement made by someone 
other than the witness. For example, when testifying in John's murder trial, Anthony states that John's best friend told him that John had killed the victim. Anthony did not hear John make the admission firsthand, making testimony of this statement hearsay. So, it's fine for Lisa to say what Kaylee told her. The problem is that the prosecution wants her to talk about what Kaylee told her mother other people said. Quote, Lisa Smith, Kaylee Bailey's mother, stated during Inquisition testimony that the reason Kaylee left the Olathe residence that day was to take food to Stout. Kaylee told Lisa that Stout requested she do this for him because he did not have a car to go to the bank for cash. The information was communicated to Kaylee through text messages from Stout's phone. Unquote. To support this, the prosecution then outlines Kaylee's movement that day, which they can prove through witnesses, receipts, and surveillance footage. Quote, Shortly after 11 a.m., Kaylee Bailey and her daughter, Lana Bailey, left their residence in Olathe, Kansas. Kaylee stopped at the Olathe Enterprise Bank and obtained $30 from an ATM, stopped at the Gardner Shell service station and purchased a fruit drink and a cold tea drink, and then headed to Ottawa. Once in Ottawa, Kaylee went to the Burger King restaurant around 12.20 p.m. and bought four double cheeseburgers, tater tots, and a kid's meal. She then proceeded to Andrew Stout's residence, unquote. Kaylee is due to work that night starting at 11 p.m., so it sounds like her plans are to go hang out at her boyfriend's place, maybe go out with Andrew for a while until she has to work. That's what Kyle told Dylan Phillips the plan was when he stopped by on Monday to get his stuff. Interestingly, perhaps ominously, Dylan calls Kyle at 1.02 p.m. that day which would be not maybe just half an hour since Kaylee and Lana have gotten there. Kyle tells him Andrew and Kaylee's schedules have changed and there's no longer a need to care for Lana. Sadly, there isn't any need. On Friday, May 3rd, 2013, two days after Kaylee and Lana are last seen, Kyle Flack asks his stepfather, Michael McCoy, to bring him some money and snacks at the modular home. I'm guessing this isn't too unusual. Kyle doesn't have a car. So Michael drops by and talks to Kyle in the driveway. Later that day, Kenneth Douglas, a friend of Kyle's, picks him up at Walmart in Emporia and takes him to stay at his apartment in Emporia. 
Kenneth and his wife, Amber Boyer, are longtime friends of Kyle and his older brother, Brad. They often let Kyle stay with them, enjoying the way he helps around the house and how good he is with their two children. Kyle stays the weekend in Emporia with them, saying Andrew and Kaylee need some, quote, alone time, unquote. On Monday, May 6th, the day the bodies are found at Andrew's house, Kenneth receives a phone call from a friend informing him of the shocking murders. When he tells Kyle, Kyle is outraged and vows to kill whoever is responsible. While the search for Lana is a top priority, the M-Squad zeroes in on locating Kaylee's 2007 Toyota Corolla, which is missing. And two persons of interest, Kyle Bailey, Kaylee's ex-husband's brother, and Kyle Flack, Andrew's roommate. Kyle Bailey is the brother of Kaylee Bailey's ex-husband and Lana's father, Sean Bailey. Every true crime fan knows that ex-husbands are the best suspects in ex-wives' murders. In this case, there could be jealousy over the new boyfriend or some concern that Lana needs to be taken out of a bad situation. Sean Bailey, 26 years old, is currently serving a nine-year sentence for burglary. So obviously, he can't be the murderer. However, it's not out of the realm of possibility that his brother Kyle would do something. Detectives track Kyle down, but they soon confirm his alibis and quickly clear him. In addition, the preliminary autopsy reports are showing that the conditions of the three bodies show markedly different times of death, although all are dead of 12-gauge shotgun wounds. Stephen White appears to have been dead quite a while, most likely killed about the 20th of April. Andrew Stout has been dead at least a day or two when Kaylee Bailey is killed on Friday, May 1st. That leaves Kyle Flack, who is the only person clearly living at the property on Georgia Road during this whole time. This alone makes him the prime suspect. Tuesday, May 7th, Kaylee's car is found abandoned in Emporia, near an apartment complex. People use the fact that, police use the fact that Kyle has some outstanding warrants and they arrest him at the apartment of his friends, Ken Douglas and Amber Boyer. They are stunned that police think Kyle is involved in the murders. Ken says, quote, that's not the person I know, unquote. Kyle participates in a long interview with police, I think up to 18 hours. The Kansas City TV stations covered the trial pretty thoroughly, so you can see parts of these interviews online. 
Kyle is arrested about 2 a.m. on Wednesday, May 8th. The focus initially is where is Lana? Kyle is angry and defensive, which you would be even if you're innocent, but he doesn't come off well. However, as time goes on, his story apparently evolves. I couldn't find a transcript or anything, but um, video snippets of the interview are out there with Kyle. The interview was very long, and much of it was played for the jury. As far as I can tell, Kyle says Andrew actually shot Stephen White first, and he covered up what happened for his friend. He tells some story about drug dealers killing everybody else. None of this is working. On Friday, May 10th, Kyle is in court charged with four murders. Four. Law enforcement is convinced that Lana is also dead. There's always a faint hope she could be alive, but searches are being conducted in the area where the car was found abandoned, gradually widening out, and they're looking for a body. A deputy vows to check every bridge and creek he can find. Sadly, that pays off when some discarded diapers and prescriptions with Lana's name on them are found. Lana's little body is found in a suitcase that has been dumped in Tequa Creek out in Osage County. The location lends credence to the theory that Kyle killed Kaylee and Lana at the modular home, put Lana's body into a suitcase, and fled the scene of the other murders in Kaylee's car. Then he got rid of the toddler's body on the way to Emporia before he abandoned the car. It takes a while for the trial against Kyle Flack to start, almost three years. That's mainly due to the defense, so the trial won't be until 2016. Insanity defenses are not successful very often any place, but in Kansas it's especially hard to use an insanity defense. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear a case disputing the insanity defense rules in Kansas this very year. It's the case of James Collar, who is currently on death row in Kansas. That's another horrible quadruple murder. It's on my list of cases to cover in the near future. When the defense uses insanity, it's usually as a mitigating factor. The prosecution theory of the case and what happened is very straightforward, but they never present a clear motivation for the crimes. And listeners, I know the prosecution doesn't have to provide a motive to convict someone of murder, But somehow a guilty verdict isn't quite as satisfying when there's no motive. Of course, how can there be any motive for murdering a baby? 
The prosecution calls experts to testify about the condition of the bodies. This makes what happened very clear. I'm going to basically read what the Ottawa Herald reporter um, Amelia Arvison wrote about this because it's really well written. It's March 17th, 2016 at the trial there in Ottawa. The editors put in a disclaimer, so I will read that to you in case you want to skip ahead a um, couple of minutes. Editor's note, the following report includes graphic details from public court proceedings that some readers may find unsettling. In the outbuilding, a well-worn Wichita State Shockers cap lay on the metal outbuilding's dirt floor. It became significant to crime scene investigators who observed bloodstains on the yellow bill and a piece of human tissue located nearby, later linked through DNA testing to Stephen White. White, who had lived with Stout at 3197 Georgia Road for a few years, was found not far from his hat, laying on his back under a tarp. Oh, no. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Gotta be grammar Nazi. Sorry, Amelia, you were doing so well. That's lying on his back. I won't give the whole lecture about lie and lay. Just Google difference between lie and lay. Back to the article. And various items piled high beside a red Chevrolet Caprice, Andrew's car. After he was killed, his body was moved. Jeremiah Morris, a Johnson County forensic scientist specializing in bloodstain pattern analysis, said, the conclusion was based on the location of blood spatter and brain matter. White's autopsy was performed May 8, 2013, Mitchell said. He verified that White died as a result of two shotgun blasts, one to the face and one to the chest. A photograph shown Tuesday of his reconstructed skull after tissue had been removed showed a sizable hole. In his head. From the study of entomology kits collected from White's liquefied brain, Neil Haskell, a forensic entomologist, testified that White died between April 18th and April 20th. Andrew Stout was found sitting partially upright against a vanity and dresser. He was covered by a sea of more than a 100,000 maggots. Neil Haskell, an international forensic entomologist consultant, said, Stout had decomposed tremendously to the point that he had become mummified According to testimony, skin from his face had been eaten away by insects, revealing his skeleton. His positioning near an air vent 
offered the possibility for heat to blow onto the mound, making it an ideal environment for mother flies to lay eggs and speed up the decaying process, Haskell said. Okay, my obligatory, not an expert, but will fearlessly question experts. He's saying there's heat blowing on the pile of clothes. Okay, it's May in Kansas. The temperatures would be 70s, maybe 80s. Sorry, non-Americans. Not sure what that is in Celsius. Whatever a nice spring temperature is. So the heat's not going to be on in the house unless Kyle turned it on, and that doesn't make any sense. He's staying there. I don't see why there would be an outside vent in the bedroom. Um, so he's got to be talking about a central heating air conditioning vent. Now, Andrew's sister did say that all the windows in the house were open when she checked on him that Friday and it was raining. So she closed the windows. Maybe that would affect the temperature. I don't know. I, I don't see the process being accelerated by any kind of heat. But, and I'm not really sure why that would be important. Um, the important question is whether Andrew is a couple of days more decomposed than Kaylee. And he obviously is, even to me. Sorry, back to the article. After studying temperatures as well as insects identified as blowfly larvae, he determined Stout died between April 28th and 30th. Tears to Stout's shirt and multiple holes in his body were evidence of how he died. At least five different wounds to Stout's face, shoulders, torso, and neck were fatal. Eric Mitchell, a forensic pathologist who said he has performed more than 12,000 autopsies. Mitchell concluded that at least four wounds were consistent with projections from a 12-gauge shotgun. Indentations to his skull were likely the result of blows to his head before he was shot, he said. Laying on, uh, lying on her back at Stout's feet was his girlfriend, Kaylee Bailey. One shotgun blast about two inches in diameter to the back of her neck, exiting from her face immediately killed her, Mitchell said. Flecks of shotgun material from the blast were found in her hair. So listeners, sorry to interrupt again, but lying on her back, but shot in the back of her neck, not an expert, seems like shot in the back, she would land face down. 
The prosecutor says that the large exit wound destroyed the front side of Kaylee's face. But whether she's shot standing up or kneeling or already on the floor, wouldn't you expect her to be face down? Unless somebody moved her, maybe when the clothes were being piled on or moved around. Oh, listeners, picturing this crime is just hideous and it just gets worse and worse. So I'm going to stop. But I do kind of question that. Haskell said he could determine that she died between May 2nd and 5th even though there was no insect activity located on her body. He noted it is possible she died May 1st, the day the prosecution said she was killed. Listeners, I have always had the impression that insect activity allowed experts to tell the time of death more like within hours than days. This sounds like not so much. That's a three-day difference. I tend to think, like the prosecution, she was killed on Wednesday, May 1st, too, not long after she got to the house. It's terrible to think that she might have been killed later. I, it's possible Kyle kept Le Lana and Kaylee captive for a while. Ugh. No one is there at the house again until May 3rd. Awful, awful. I, I really think that they're dead before Kyle talks to Dylan Phillips. That's on May 1st. Back to the article. Photographs of Bailey showed her naked from the waist down, her arms bound behind her back, and in other reports, that's with zip ties, and a red bandana around her neck. Flack was originally charged with rape, which was later lessened to misdemeanor sexual battery. It is unclear so far what evidence the prosecution plans to present relating to the sex charge. Listeners, I couldn't find that they ever presented any physical evidence of sexual assault. I think maybe it's just how Kaylee's body is found that indicates a sexual motive. The prosecution presents some shotgun evidence. Kyle is supposed to have carried around a 12-gauge shotgun with him all the time, and after he's arrested, it can't be located. On May 8, 2013, a maintenance worker in Emporia finds parts of a 12-gauge shotgun that he turns over to law enforcement. That's believed to be the murder weapon discarded there by Kyle on May 3, 2013. It does contain Kyle's DNA. They try to link the shotgun to the shells found at the scene of the crime, but what they present is really kind of iffy. All I will say about baby Lana's death is that she died from a single shotgun wound to her back. Then 
Kyle Flack stays at the modular home for two more days, apparently sleeping on the couch. After he gets some cash and snacks for the road from his stepfather, he puts Lana's body into Kaylee's car and takes off for Emporia, dumping the suitcase into Tequa Creek along the way. Okay, listeners, there's really no question that this is what happened. Prosecution presents this case. The defense gamely cross-examines and tries to introduce doubt, drugs, other people. Kyle's being framed or got dragged into the situation somehow. But in the end, they present no case for the defense. No witnesses, nothing. It's another one of those cases when the defense is just hoping somebody on the jury has a reasonable doubt. My impression is they're trying to get the trial over with so they can concentrate on saving Kyle from the death penalty and lay the groundwork for appeals. March 23rd, 2016, only a few hours after closing arguments in his murder trial, Kyle Flack is found guilty of capital murder in the deaths of Kaylee and Lana Bailey. He's found guilty of second-degree murder in Andrew Stout's death and first-degree murder in Stephen White's death. I believe the jury decided that Kyle might not have planned Andrew's murder. It might have been a spur of the moment, heat of the moment, result of a fight, maybe. There are wounds on Andrew's head. The penalty phase of the proceedings is mainly to decide whether spare flack the death penalty. Typically, these are cathartic proceedings where the victim's families get to share their grief and the defense gets to present mitigating factors. The penalty phase of the Kyle Flack case is no exception. It's heart-wrenching on both sides. Kyle had a terrible childhood, and witnesses show that. They testify Kyle's birth was the product of rape. He's abused his whole childhood, has documented serious mental issues. Kyle appears unemotional throughout, even through Lisa Smith, Kaylee's mother, and Lana's grandmother's testimony. But there is a dramatic moment in the courtroom when his mother, Tammy McCoy, breaks down on the stand. Kyle, visibly upset, intervenes for his attorney to stop it. Kyle Flack is sentenced to death on March 31st, 2016, for the murders of Kaylee and Lana. 
He's on Kansas's death row at El Dorado Correctional Facility. So listeners, I think what happened in this case is pretty clear. The question is why. To analyze that, we should look into Kyle Fleck and his background. There's more I haven't gone into yet. Okay, listeners, buckle up. It's wild speculation time. According to people familiar with the family, Kyle and his older brother, Brad, get moved around a lot. Sounds like primarily due to Tammy McCoy, the mother, trying to get away from abusive relationships. For the most part, people feel sorry for Kyle because of how chaotic and unstable his family life is. He's described as introverted, quiet, and a little strange, but not mean. It's worth noting that Brad's in the same household and doesn't end up a quadruple murderer. In a nutshell, I think one of the primary dynamics is that Brad is well-adjusted and has friends, a good circle of friends that makes an effort to include his kind of weird kid brother in their activities. I think that probably keeps some of the worst from happening sooner. But Kyle still has serious mental problems that never really get dealt with. I found a little newspaper clipping showing Kyle on the 8th grade honor roll in school. So at least at age 13, he's in school and apparently doing okay. It won't be long after that, though, that Brad will graduate from high school, and presumably then he moves on with his life. I wonder if that might have left Kyle a little adrift in his life, maybe feeling kind of alone. Kyle doesn't finish high school, and he doesn't do much with his life after that. In 2005, when Kyle's 19, a local man, Stephen Dale Free, F-R-E-E, gives Kyle some odd jobs to do, just, as he said, to help the kid out. That has tragic consequences. Kyle is a terrible employee, and he gets fired not in a very kind way. This sets Kyle off. One night, he sneaks up on Free while he's with some friends and shoots him five times. Free isn't killed, but his health is destroyed, and he dies just a few years later. Kyle is convicted of attempted murder. In hindsight, you almost wish it could have been for murder, but Kyle's only 19 and he hasn't been in trouble with the law before that we know of. 
To me, listeners, lying in wait for somebody and then shooting him five times shows some serious rage issues. But that's our justice system. Kyle goes off to Hutchinson, Kansas Correctional Facility. He's there four years, and he does well in the structured environment. We see this a lot. He gets his GED. Um, For non-Americans, our basic public school system is 12 years, ending with four years of high school. GED stands for General Educational Development Tests, which adults can take and get a certificate that's considered roughly equivalent to graduating from high school. One of the standard rehabilitation programs in all of our prisons is to prepare inmates many of whom are high school dropouts, to take these exams. Kyle did that. He did well. He got some counseling and vocational training while he was there. He was paroled in 2009. His parole officer was impressed with how quickly he found a job working for Ottawa Sanitation Department and how fast he started to get his life back on track. His boss said Kyle was an excellent employee. Kyle's job is not a glamorous one, basically working on the back of a garbage truck, but he was always on time, worked hard, and even tried to be a good influence on other guys at work. He stuck at it for three years. The parole officer said Kyle was one of her good cases, always meeting his goals. But something goes wrong in 2012. Kyle quits his job. The boss was surprised. He even kept the job open a few weeks in case Kyle decided to come back. I'll speculate here, but I think what goes wrong is he gets off parole in 2012. On parole, he has supervision. He meets weekly with his parole officer, who gives him good advice, encourages him, checks on what he's doing. Completely on his own, he really can't cope, and he doesn't have the kind of rock-solid influences that might help him do that. There might have been some event that really starts the unraveling of Kyle Flack that culminates in the murders, but maybe not. Maybe it's just a process of the mental illness. Kyle starts to drift through life, doing odd jobs, hanging out, couch surfing, and I'm sure drugs and lots of alcohol. By 2013, Andrew has sort of taken Brad's place as the older brother, and maybe even almost a father figure for Kyle. Unfortunately, Andrew's just about Kyle's only lifeline at this time, too. 
Andrew's a good guy, but he's 30 and not exactly a paragon of achievement himself. He's 30, no career, no real direction in life. I believe he's starting to see that and wants to change things. I like to think the future for him and Kaylee might have been decent jobs and a nice, stable family and long, happy lives. Of course, we'll never know. Sadly, when Andrew and Kaylee start making plans to live together, on some level, Kyle sees this as Andrew deserting him. So here we go. Kaylee and Lana spend more and more time at the modular home. Andrew starts urging various roommates to find new places to live. Kyle is no doubt fine with other roommates getting kicked out. But the idea of losing Andrew in his life, I think, is just too much for him. He can't handle it. So now... It's wild speculation time again. In my opinion, totally not expert. This is what I think happened with Kyle. He decides to personally kick out Stephen White. Kyle hates him being at the house and not without reason. If you look up Stephen White on the Kansas Department of Corrections website, he's in and out of prison his entire adult life. Arson, burglary, drugs. The two men argue, probably even get in a fight. Kyle's rage builds up, and I think he ambushes White like he did Dale Free. In Kyle's interview with the police, he did tell them a story that Andrew actually shot Stephen, and Kyle just helped him cover it up. I think to him, that's partially true. He really believes he was helping Andrew, his big brother, by killing Stephen White. Of course, the story makes no sense at all, unlike Kyle Andrew is not mentally ill, and he has a car. Andrew would have gotten Kyle to help him put the body in the car and dispose of it. He wouldn't just let it rot in his garage. To me, that part shows how off the rails Kyle is. Almost like, okay, this guy's dead. That problem's solved. Things are better. I don't need to worry about any consequences. But things aren't better. I wonder if Andrew discovered the body. Maybe that Sunday, the 28th of April, when they went riding around, Andrew decided to put his car in the garage when they got back. Kyle would either try to stop him, and that would look a little suspicious, or maybe Kyle would even decide to come clean thinking Andrew would help him cover it up. Andrew does care about Kyle. I think if he found the body, he wouldn't necessarily call the police right away. He would try to talk Kyle into turning himself in. Kyle would think 
Anders should be grateful. I did the, all of this for you. So I think Kyle pulled his shotgun and forced Andrew into the house, still trying to talk to him. Andrew does have severe blows to his head. I don't think that's from a fight. I don't think he's a match for Kyle in a, in a fight. Kyle's bigger. Um, I think the blows to the head are from the butt of the shotgun. Kyle just can't handle things, and he shoots Andrew. After that, Kyle goes off into a completely dark, evil, perverse place. Listeners, I like to think I'm not mentally ill, so it's hard for me to think like crazy people. But I believe Kyle killing what he's got to see as his last friend is the end for him in in his mind. I think there's this crushing guilt as at least as much as in, as somebody like that can feel. To cope with that, he tries to sort of erase what he's done and erase Andrew, covering him up and ignoring what's happened shows that. And then in a weird way, he tries to become Andrew in his mind. Over the next two days that are in between when he kills Andrew and when he kills Kaylee and Lana, he texts with Kaylee on Andrew's phone, pretending to be Andrew. They exchange dozens of messages over those two days. During that time, he convinces Kaylee that he's Andrew. And on that Wednesday, to bring lunch and come over and they'll go out before she goes to work. Kyle can watch Lana. I think when he's talking to Dylan that Monday, he knows he's Kyle. But in his mind, he's talking about what he wants to do as Andrew. He's planning things. Then he spends two nights in the house with Andrew's body. Who does that? Well, somebody who can convince himself of whatever he wants. And that's, I'm Andrew, and I can keep living here, and I can be with Kaylee. I'm not sure exactly what happens when Kaylee gets there. Andrew's car is in the garage, um, not out front where I think it would usually be. So Kyle probably makes up some story. You know, he had to get something, his mother called, something. Or he could have just met Kaylee and Lana with a shotgun, but I think he has a little fantasy that he wants to play out. That he's Andrew, and Kaylee's his girlfriend, and maybe even Lana's his daughter. They're about to have lunch and whatever. Kaylee comes on in the house with Lana and lunch. The Burger King stuff is still on the kitchen 
the Monday they find the bodies. Either Kaylee notices the smell of the body and goes toward the bedroom or or maybe they even have lunch and she goes back there to put Lan in the playpen. It's back in the bedroom. I'm not sure exactly when or where or how the attack takes place, but I do know on some level, Kyle knows that he's going to have to force himself on Kaylee. He's got zip ties and a gag handy. He subdues Kaylee and tries to rape her. I think try is the word there. I think that's the reason there's no evidence of a real rape is that Kyle couldn't physically manage it. That completely unhinged him and he killed her. I I don't even want to think about Lana, but at some point... The monster that Kyle is kills an innocent child. In the Bible, there's a verse that always comes to my mind when I think about child killers, which I promise you isn't very often. It's not perfectly applicable, but my interpretation gives me some comfort. I'll paraphrase a little. If you hurt a child, the punishment of God is such that you will wish you were cast into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. That said, I do wonder if there might be room for some compassion for Kyle Flack. Not here on earth. No, he absolutely deserves the death penalty. No way he should ever walk free. However, I do believe he is seriously mentally ill. And I'm glad God is the one who judges his eternal soul. Listeners, there are so many what-ifs in this case. What if Kaylee Bailey had recognized some red flags before she even got heavily involved with Andrew Stout? 30-year-old guy, lives in mother's modular home, stream of low-life guys, couch surfing there all the time, no steady job. And did I mention both his roommates are violent ex-cons? At the very least, think long and hard about putting your little daughter into that situation. At the best, oh, Kaylee, run fast, run far. Listeners, the biggest what if? What if Kyle Flack had gotten real 
serious psychological help. When he was young, when he was in prison, even when he was on parole, just sometime, I'll forego a long rant on how important mental health treatment is and how we must improve our knowledge of people's minds. Honestly, I'm to the point that I think psychological research and treatment is perhaps more important than medical. If you think that's a little off base, try thinking how many more Kyles there are out there. Of Kyle Flack's victims, the only one I couldn't find on www.findagrave.com was Stephen Dale Free, the first victim. The rest of them are out there with their obituaries. They're all loved and missed by their families and friends. Some of them may not have been perfect or made the best choices, but they were loved and they certainly didn't deserve to be murdered. Little Lana's father, Sean Bailey, was interviewed about what happened. He was in prison in Missouri for all of this. He's heartbroken. He blames himself. Quote, if I just could have been a better person, this wouldn't have happened. Unquote. Another what if, listeners. He had this to say about Kyle Flack. Quote, when you go and kill a baby, you have no more humanity left inside of you, unquote. Right on, Sean. I think he shows himself to be very perceptive. He sees the injustice that he has a second chance, something Kaylee and Lana will never get. He says, quote, I can use this as an excuse to be a junkie for the rest of my life, or I can use it as fuel to turn my life around and help somebody else. I'm going to choose the latter, unquote. Okay, listeners, you know me. You know I'm judgmental and I'm cynical, especially about convicts. So I looked up Sean Bailey on the Missouri Department of Corrections website. Just a warning, if you do that, the eyes in Sean Bailey's mugshot are Lana's eyes. She looked just like her dad. Not going to lie, I figured he would be good in prison for a while, and then get paroled, and then go back to his old life and be back in prison. He surprised me. He's on parole, still, living in Springfield, Missouri. I choose to believe that he's been true to his word and always will be. He's living a clean, decent life. 
and in Kaylee and Lana's memory, he helps somebody every single day. I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. Mainly area newspapers, especially the Ottawa Herald and the Lawrence Journal World. No books or podcasts that I could find. The Kansas City TV stations like um, Fox 4 and the CBS station K, they all covered the trial. They have um, YouTube little videos out there on it. It gives you an idea of the scene of the crime and some of the people involved, so they're pretty interesting. I also couldn't find any appeal information out there. This is a death penalty case, so you know there will be appeals. So there probably will be more information about the case that might come out. Personally, I don't think appeals are going to go anywhere. But Kansas hasn't executed anyone since 1965, so there's that. I would like to apologize for not getting this posted sooner. When I first started the podcast a couple of months ago, my goal was once a week, get an episode up on the same day every week, like my favorites do. Generation Y on Sunday, True Crime Garage on Tuesday. But I've been slipping. I will really try for Monday nights from now on. I may miss that deadline sometimes, but that's my goal, to do it on time. I am getting better at managing the time and researching and investigating and recording, I think, and editing. I finally figured out how to get the little pops out, so I hope I don't miss too many of those. There's definitely a learning curve for podcasters. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review for me. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders, all one word, at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the website for the podcast prisoncitymurders.com B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.